we have spoken about uh, how it is uh, possible to follow Tantra, practice Tantra on a Dharma light level in which uh, we're thinking only of uh, this lifetime and doing the practices in order to benefit this lifetime and our goal or objective is to try to attain enlightenment within this lifetime and the real thing Dharma which is thinking in terms of uh, past and future lives as well and we saw that uh, practicing the uh, Dharma light version or the real thing version that uh, we need to of course have the preparation which is the common and uncommon uh, preliminar uh, preliminaries or prepar preparatory practices and we also need to uh, receive an empowerment or initiation and uh, take the vows and keep the vows not just take them but uh, actually keep them to the best of our ability and to establish a uh, close bond or uh, connection with the spiritual teacher. But uh, now the next question that uh, we can examine is uh, if we are practicing uh, Tantra on this uh, light level, this lifetime only, not thinking in terms of uh, future lives, how can we actually get the most benefit from it? What can we actually do if uh, we are not really uh, prepared yet to uh, practice on a, uh, a very deep level? And I think one of the things that uh, is uh, very, very helpful that we can do is a recitation of mantras. This is in fact what uh, most lay Tibetans uh, do as uh, their uh, practice of uh, reciting mantras. Many of them, uh, particularly when they're old, uh, spend all their time practicing uh, reciting mantras. So, very good. Uh, what is the benefit? And we look at the meaning of the word mantra. And uh, this is, uh, man is uh, short for uh, manas, the mind. And tra comes from the root to protect or save. Tara comes from the same root. And so it is something which is uh, to protect the mind. So what would that actually uh, mean? And we can look at this on uh, various levels, superficial levels and uh, deeper levels. So what uh, if we uh, look in terms of our mental state, we find that uh, very often our minds are racing with all sorts of uh, uh, thoughts. Now, thinking process, of course, is, uh, can be beneficial, you know, to figure out uh, how to do something, you need to think, uh, or it uh, can be uh, just a process of worrying. And so much of our time is filled with uh, worry or just unnecessary chatter or uh, uh, becoming like, uh, it feels like becoming a, uh, an insect, a cricket, that uh, you, know, you can't stop yourself from singing a song in your head. 
that just goes over and over and over and you can't get it out of your, of your head. In German, they call that an earworm. So uh, we have, uh, you know, these uh, very uncomfortable states of mind that uh, occur, compulsive type of uh, uh, issues that we're thinking about, that uh, we need some sort of protection. And so we can look at uh, mantra as some sort of uh, mental judo that uh, if <laughs> the energy, the verbal energy of the uh, mind is, you know, so strong that it's going blah, 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 you know, singing a song or, a, you know, a television commercial or, you know, something horrible like that <laughs> that's going on, then uh, instead of trying to just stop it, which uh, unless we're very highly trained in, uh, uh, you know, concentration methods, it's very difficult to do, you know, to just say, okay, well, I'll stop it. It's quiet. Uh, if you can do that, wonderful. But if you can't do that, then uh, what we can do is flip the energy. And in other words, like in a judo, use the momentum of that mental verbal energy to recite a mantra instead of uh, reciting, uh, you know, a TV commercial. So this is very helpful, and the rhythm of a mantra is very steady. And if we can uh, also focus on the meaning of uh, the mantra, in other words, the state of mind that we're going to generate with that, let's say compassion with Omani Peme Hum, or clarity of mind and understanding with the mantra of Manjushri, these sort of things, then this uh, certainly protects the... Uh, the mind. Uh, actually, since it's very helpful to know methods, so let me uh, share with you another method, actually, which isn't mantras, uh, it doesn't have to do with tantra, but uh, is also very effective when you have an earworm, you know, when you have a tune going through your head, is uh, do some mathematical problem in your head. That also is very, very effective in stopping that uh, compulsive repetition, repetition of a, uh, a song or a melody or uh, some junk that is uh, going on. It uh, switches the mind you know, completely to another mode of uh, analysis and it's actually quite, quite beneficial. You know, go through some multiplication tables or something like that. So, but mantra is uh, the tantra method for doing this uh, mental judo. And uh, it's uh, very helpful. Mantra is uh, intended to help us to keep focus on a certain state of mind. If we are uh, going to uh, generate compassion, well, very good. You know, you just generate it and you feel it and so on. But uh, if you also have uh, a mantra going at the same time, it helps to keep you more focused. And so this is uh, recommended even in the uh, seven-point uh, mind training that uh, do this together with uh, recitation of mantra. Um, some people, uh, most people, I say, uh, would say, uh, also uh, do mantra with a mala, the rosary beads. 
Well, that can also become, you know, fairly mindless if you just exercise your thumb. But uh, also it uh, engages us uh, more, you know. There's uh, so much emphasis in uh, Buddhism on body, speech, and mind. And we want to uh, get the three integrated, uh, you know, in other words, manifesting a certain type of uh, uh, practice or state of mind in body, speech, and mind simultaneously. So while, I mean, of course, there are mudras and, you know, this sort of stuff, but uh, actually physically doing the uh, uh, beads and uh, verbally doing the uh, mantra and mentally generating the state of mind that uh, is uh, uh, appropriate to that mantra, this makes a complete package, as it were that uh, uh, helps us to really uh, stay focused and not have, uh, not multitask with our body, speech, and mind, you know, each of them doing something different. So it's very integrative, if that's a word, uh, type of uh, practice. So we have uh, mantras. But uh, one of the further levels of uh, mantra, if you look at that, is uh, the shaping of the breath. And uh, the word for breath and the word for energy uh, and the word for wind, all of that is uh, the same word. And so if we can uh, shape the breath with a mantra, then uh, we also uh, shape the energies of uh, the body and uh, it helps through more advanced practices known as Vajra breathing, for example, to bring the energies into, to centralize them so that uh, they don't run wild in our body. You know, when we talk about the subtle energies of the body, they're the energies of the disturbing emotions. Uh, so it's something that uh, I think most of us uh, can recognize that uh, when our minds are upset, we feel nervous, so that's a physical feeling of uh, feeling upset. The energy is really uh, flowing in a horrible way within our bodies, very uncomfortable way. And so a mantra is also a way of shaping the energies to try to get it uh, more uh, stable and more focused. And uh, what one wants to do is to uh, get it more and more centralized. That has to do with much more uh, complex practices, complete stage uh, practices. But anyway, the mantra is something which uh, has uh, more uh, deeper meanings and applications than just uh, uh, reciting with your uh, mala o mani pe me hum all day long. So this is something that also we should be aware of. But Sirkum Rinpoche, my teacher, uh, always used to uh, say that there are three powerful things in this world. There is uh, medicine, there is uh, technology, and there are mantras. But uh, and medicine and technology, one can understand that these are very powerful for helping others, helping oneself, for accomplishing uh, many things. But uh, what about mantras? And uh, 
on a very superficial level, one could think or imagine of uh, mantras almost like the magic spell that you can say, magic words, and uh, all sorts of uh, extraordinary powers are bestowed by saying these words. So this is a uh, one level of uh, understanding his statement, and he never really explained that. So now we have uh, next generation, Serkan Rinpoche. So his uh, reincarnation also is my teacher. And uh, he's 32 now. And I uh, asked him, you know, what did your predecessor, that's how you refer to, you know, your previous incarnation, you don't say, what, what, what did you mean? You know, that's a little bit presumptuous. So you say, what did your predecessor, pre predecessor mean by saying that uh, mantra is, you know, the most powerful thing in the world, together with medicine and technology. And uh, he said that, uh, well, referring to the Heart Sutra. And in the Heart Sutra, it's, you know, it says, you know, the, the, you know, the, the uh, most powerful mantra and so on is the mantra of Prajnaparamita, Gati Gati Paragati Parasam Gati Soha, which is speaking about you know, the progressive stages, the five stages, the five paths for attaining liberation or enlightenment on the basis of the understanding of emptiness or voidness, and voidness in terms of, you know, behavior. How do you integrate the, uh, the two, you know, the understanding of things don't uh, exist in the impossible ways that our minds project and that we believe but nevertheless, everything functions. So, what uh, the meaning of why vo uh, mantra is so powerful is that it's actually referring to the understanding of emptiness, the understanding of voidness, and the path that will bring you to liberation or enlightenment. And that's why it's the most, you know, that together with medicine and technology makes it the most uh, powerful thing. So I found that uh, very, very helpful, very insightful, and also sort of neat that uh, the reincarnation explained what the predecessor actually meant by that. That uh, gave me a little bit further confidence <laughs> in terms of, uh, of that, because nobody could explain. Nobody, uh, you know, when I asked what could he possibly have meant by that, nobody was able to really understand. But then it became very, very clear that it's uh, speaking directly about the Heart Sutra. So, mantra. This is something that uh, we can benefit from as a Dharma-like practitioner of uh, Vajrayana is to practice mantra. Very, very helpful. And do it a lot. You know, this uh, thing of counting very interesting, you know, you have uh, the, the preparatory practices, the nundra, you know, do 100,000 or 130,000 or, you know, there are all these different uh, numbers that uh, you do. And uh, when you do a, uh, uh, a retreat, uh, what's called an approximation retreat or a retreat that uh, to make your serviceability, sometimes it's translated to make your mind flexible with the practice, then you need to, you know, recite the mantra, 
if it is up to 21 syllables, I think it's 21, maybe it's 16, I'm, I'm not quite sure, that uh, you need to recite the mantra 100,000 times for each syllable. So for, you know, Omani Peme Hum, 600,000 for Tara's mantra, a million. So, you know, if it's beyond that, then it's uh, 10,000, beyond 21 syllables. So, you ask, you know, well, what is the benefit of keeping count, you know, when you're doing these uh, mantras? You know, is it uh, being very materialistic or not? And I think that uh, we need to look back at the context in which uh, these uh, practices were recommended by the Buddha. And at that time, we're talking about mostly uneducated people, or even in the monks, uh, the monastic community, fairly simple, ordinary people, and feeling that they've never really accomplished terribly much in their life. And so when you have this uh, sort of low self-esteem, in a sense that, you know, well, I can't possibly you know, do something like uh, attain enlightenment, you know, this is, uh, requires an unbelievable amount of work, then if you can recite something or do something 100,000 times, which is unimaginable that you can actually do that, or unimaginable that you can do, you know, something a million times, and you're able to actually accomplish it, and you see, well, it's not so difficult. You know, even Vajrasattva, the hundred-syllable mantra, you know, you do 300 a day, you've finished in a year. You know, that's not such a big deal to uh, do 300 a day. You can do it. So, like that, it gives a sense of self-confidence. And that's very, very helpful. It's not this materialistic thing. You might as well count to 100,000. That's not going to accomplish uh, very much. But uh, by keeping count, I think that, uh, and seeing that you can actually accomplish something that uh, before you ever try to do it, you think that this is just too much, is uh, very, very helpful. You find this in physical training as well. I do physical training, you know, weights and stuff like that, and the trainer says, you know, to do this exercise, you know, uh, 50 times. And you say, I can't possibly do it 50 times. But then he pushes you to do it. And you see that actually, you know, taking breaks along the way, you actually can do it 50 times. And it gives you, you know, great confidence sense of accomplishment. Of course, you can go on an ego trip, an arrogant trip on, you know, in terms of that. But if you ease off on that, it gives us the strength to go further. So, not such a bad idea, the counting of uh, the mantras. But if we're doing it all day long, which uh, for people who are very nervous, very tense, and so on, can be very, very beneficial. You sort of have that going in the background is uh, helpful. Also, a thing to uh, keep in mind is that uh, what I mentioned before, to keep things private. If you walk around in public with your, you know, rosary, 
you know, and mumbling to yourself like that, yeah, that looks pretty strange. And you don't want to invite criticism, you don't want to invite people making fun of you, and so on. So, you know, you can do it privately. The mala, you can keep, you know, in your purse or in your pocket or, you know, have something really small. You don't need, you know, some big, you know, ostentatious uh, mala. There are ways of doing things uh, a little bit more privately. You know, the same thing with the red strings. You know, sometimes people look almost like a Nubangi, you know, with about 20 red strings around their <laughs> neck. And, uh, you know, and they, they're really old and, you know, look you know, quite ragged. And uh, what are you supposed to, you know, wear, you know, dress very elegantly, but you have these dirty, you know, strings around your neck. That looks pretty weird. So, <laughs> you know, there's nothing wrong with keeping it in your wallet, keeping it in your pocket. You don't have to actually make it so uh, visible. Privacy, keeping things private. Don't invite obstacles. The more you make a show of what you're doing, the more obstacles uh, come. And we have enough internal obstacles. We don't need external obstacles as well. Fine. So mantras, one thing we can do. The next thing is uh, in terms of uh, the visualization, and the visualization is uh, what is the safest, the best for us. If we're practicing on a Dharma light level, and we're really beginners, and we really don't have the uh, background that would uh, enable us to uh, you know, practice on a more serious level, is to just visualize the figure in front of us or in the case of Vajrasattva on the crown of our heads, and not yet visualize ourselves as the form of the figure. And there are many, many tantra practices in which, uh, starting with guru yoga, and uh, you know, proceeding from that type of practice in which we imagine the figure in front of us, whether it's Chenrezig or Tara or whoever it might uh, be, and we find it very inspirational and you can imagine all sorts of lights and nectars flowing to us and uh, filling us with uh, all sorts of uh, you know little figures of uh, you know the uh, the the yidam you know to get qualities of the body and syllables you know seed syllables uh, well not seed syllables the syllables of the mantra to get the qualities of speech and the syllable, uh, seed syllables get the quality of mind and the insignia, and there's tons and tons of uh, variations of this that we can do with any deity. And that's another insight, by the way, is that all these practices are interchangeable, especially these very basic practices of uh, visualizations of lights coming to you and what's in the lights and the qualities that it generates in you and so on. They can work with any figure. There's so many different varieties of practices. And new practices come along as, uh, as well. The dharmas that uh, were mentioned uh, before, 
and in terms of whether you do them in Tibetan or you do them in Western language or another you know, Asian language or whatever, that really is uh, uh, one needs to ask the advice of the teacher who's transmitting them and follow their guidance. You know, it's hard to give a general formula for that. But uh, in any case, these practices are interchangeable. And you find so many varieties. So there's not just one way, you know, this is special, and uh, you know, my special way, that uh, tends to get into arrogance type of thing. Mine is better than yours. And we don't need that, not at all. But if we do these practices with the uh, figure in front of us, in the manner of uh, guru yoga, that we are, what does the word yoga mean? Yoga means to, it's the same word as yoke, to join. So we want to join our, the qualities of Buddha. It's represented by the guru, or represented by the Buddha figure, with our own qualities, and inspire, uplift us, so that uh, our qualities get heightened, to become closer and closer to those of enlightened being. It's a resultant vehicle, after all. So we try to not only imagine that our quality, you know, imagine that I am all loving, and yet I can't get along with my parents, I can't get along with the people in the office, I can't get along with my children. That doesn't work, you know. You have to actually put it into practice as best as uh, we can. So, make our qualities as close as possible, not just in our imagination, but in actual daily life, with those represented by the Buddha figure. And these uh, visualizations are very, very helpful for, um, what should we say, graphic representation of what we're trying to do. In other words, if we are trying to generate four measurables, for example, measurable attitudes, these positive attitudes of love, compassion, joy, and uh, equanimity. Well, you can recite the words, you know, over and over again. That's one thing. But uh, if you have a figure that has four arms, chenrezi, and the four arms represent these four immeasurables, then it's easier to sort of try to put it together in one state of mind. That, you know, how does it fit together so that we are equally loving, compassionate, you know, rejoicing in the, in the positive things of others? You know, we want them to have not just uh, ordinary happiness, but everlasting happiness and equanimity to everybody. These sort of things to have it, woo, one state of mind. So here we have this visualization. Remember, the word tantra has also this connotation of the loom on which we weave together all the different uh, understandings, all the different points of sutra. So these images are very, very helpful for that reason. And having it in front of us and inspiring us and uplifting us 
is a very, what should we say, danger-free, at least minimal danger, way of practicing Tantra on the Dharma light level. So this is uh, one thing, because uh, if we try to visualize ourselves prematurely as uh, one of these Buddha figures, there's a great danger. And it is said you know, quite clearly in the text that uh, if you don't have some level of bodhicitta, and if you don't have some level of understanding of emptiness or voidness, that by visualizing yourself you know, very concretely as you know, a samsaric trip, as one of these figures, this is the perfect cause for being reborn as a ghost in the form of the Buddha figure. Well, that is quite a statement, isn't it? But what are we doing? You know, I'm not doing this practice of visualizing myself as this uh, with understanding that this is a method for attaining you know, uh, the body of a Buddha. I'm not dedicating it toward enlightenment. So when you build up some sort of positive force, it's like uh, with your computer. You know, there are two folders in which, you know, I mean, there's the, the enlightenment folder and you have to save, you know, save as something in the enlightenment folder. And if you don't press that button, the default setting of your internal computer is that it goes into the samsara folder. <laughs> That's a very helpful image, actually, to keep in mind. You have to save it in the proper folder. So it's just going to build up a cause for being reborn in the form, a samsaric form, of this figure. And that would be as a ghost. And you find this. It's very, very interesting, actually. Very interesting. If uh, uh, you look at the phenomenon that uh, goes on in uh, places like Malaysia and uh, Singapore, that uh, you have whole groups of uh, people that are channeling different Buddha figures, you know, laughing Buddha, which is a form of Maitreya in Chinese Buddhism, and uh, so on. And here are people who somehow, you know, go into a trance and, you know, all these basically ghosts in the form of these, you know, laughing Buddha or this Buddha or that Buddha are speaking through them. And it's such a widespread phenomenon. And witnessing that, it got me to thinking that, you know, hey, maybe this is what they're, you know, the texts were warning against. Because Tantra flourished in these areas, you know, many, many centuries ago. And so maybe these are spirits or ghosts that practice, you know, visualizing themselves as this or that Buddha figure but without proper bodhicitta, without some understanding of the you know, emptiness or voidness of what they were doing. So they took it very, very concretely. I really am you know, this figure, solidly you know, established you know, inherently, etc. And here's the result. Here's the result. 
But all these, my, you know, the laughing Buddhas that are channeled and so on, what are they doing? They are giving advice to people. And so these are your corner psychologists, you know, on the street corner, giving advice to people and people come, you know, and uh, somebody goes into a you know, trance and then, you know, this spirit speaks to them and uh, helps them with their problems. So there is some sort of positive thing that was going on, which gave more credence to the possibility that this is maybe what uh, um, the texts we're talking about. Yeah, they tried to practice Tantra, some compassion, some love, but they, it's premature. Didn't really have the proper thing. So this is a big danger, and this is why I think that uh, it is uh, far safer when we haven't reached the stage at which, you know, at least on some level we have bodhicitta, at least at some level we're not taking all these visualizations as, you know, so concrete and solid, you know, that I really am, you know, Tara. I really am, you know, this or that figure. And visualizing the figure in front of us is far, far better to do. This is something to take quite uh, seriously, I think. Then, another aspect that uh, we can uh, practice <coughs> or do uh, as a Dharma-like practitioner of Tantra, that the benefit that we can uh, derive from that is having a daily practice. I mean, we could have a daily practice, of course, also as a sutra practitioner, and that's something that uh, we need to do if we're going to make any progress. You know, uh, meditation, and there's so many different forms of uh, meditation, but uh, this is something that we need to develop the discipline of doing it you know, with a commitment, not just doing it when I feel like doing it, not just doing it when I, you know, I'm so desperate I really need it, but as a steady commitment, you know, like you brush your teeth every morning, you know, you do your daily practice every morning. This type of thing, it builds up a sense of uh, stability, discipline, responsibility, perseverance. You know, you stick with it. And there is this uh, armor-like perseverance which is that, you know, I don't care how difficult it is, I'm just going to do it, whether I feel like it or not. I'm going to do it. This type of thing. With the realization that the nature of samsara is that it goes up and down. That's the nature of samsara. So what do you expect? Some days it's going to go well, some days it's going to go terribly. Some days you'll have good concentration. Some days your mind is going to be wandering all over the place. Don't get upset about it. You know, eight so-called eight worldly dharmas. You know, the eight, I mean, literally, it means the eight transitory things, the things that change, that have a perishable basis. Jikden is the Tibetan word that's translated as worldly. Again, Sirkin Rinpoche would say, milk the meaning out of the words. 
So something with a basis, that jik that perishes. So transitory. Praise, blame, things going well, things not going well. It's transitory, falls apart, goes up and down. So don't get thrown by it. Just perseverance. Just continue no matter what. You know, not how wonderful I am that it's going well and how terrible I am if it's not going well. You just do it. And this uh, provides a tremendous sense of continuity in our lives, stability in our lives, no matter how much craziness is going on in our daily life. This is something which is steady. That uh, there's this period of time, however long it might be, be five minutes, it could be a half hour, it could be an hour. It's not important. Uh, not, that's not the right word. It's not crucial how long it is. As long as it's something that we have committed ourselves to and we maintain no matter what. That's another point that I should bring in that uh, sort of comes to mind in connection with this which is, uh, again, advice from Sirkin Rinpoche, that uh, if we're doing a meditation retreat in which, uh, you know, in each session you do a certain, you know, amount of uh, mantras or a certain type of, you know, whatever it is, the first session only repeat it three times because that's your basic commitment that in every session Every day, that's what you're going to do, minimum. That way, even if you're sick, no matter what, you could manage to recite, you know, Om Mani Padme Hum three times. That way, you keep your commitment, you keep your continuity, no matter how sick you are. I mean, obviously, if you're in a coma, it's something else. But uh, uh, this is very, very helpful advice of how to keep continuity. Don't try to keep continuity of something enormous that's going to be a burden. As it says in the uh, instructions for meditation, make your sessions short and it should be that uh, you end your session when you would still like to continue. And the analogy is uh, when you're with a, a friend and the friend leaves when you would still like to spend more time with the friend you'll be very happy when the friend comes back but if the friend overstays their welcome and stays too long you can't wait until they leave and you certainly don't want them to come again so the same thing with your meditation cushion <laughs> that just make it short to begin with you really want to continue but okay and you'll want to come back. And then gradually you can maintain it and extend it. But if you have that minimum uh, commitment, you know, the, mi the minimal level that you've committed yourself to, then you can, you can maintain it each day. With all the practices, there are long versions and there are shorter versions. Be flexible. Again, Sirkin explained that uh, 
opposite to what we want to think. The longest versions are for the beginners, and the short abbreviated versions are the advanced practices. The reason for that is that the, if you are familiar with the long practices, then when you do the short practices, the abbreviated practices, you can fill in all the stuff that's abbreviated there. And that's why you have the abbreviated practices, because eventually you don't have to recite everything that you're doing because you're so familiar with it, you can just generate it. You know what, how many arms you have and what colors and what they're holding. You don't have to recite it to remind yourself. So, <laughs> nevertheless, when we are practicing, you know, have sort of a, uh, an abbreviated, you know, a travel version of uh, what we're doing so that uh, then you can maintain that uh, continuity no matter what. And this is your minimal commitment. That's very helpful. Also, uh, be flexible, you know. So important. When you have a uh, main figure that you are uh, practicing with, then, uh, what should we say? As uh, he said to uh, you know, one of uh, my close friends, also a close disciple of Sirkan Rinpoche, you know, he was asking, well, I'm supposed to be practicing Yamantika all day long, but you know, what do you do with Omani Pei Hum and you know, Chen Rezi practice as well? And so he said, well, can't Yamantika recite Omani Pei Hum? Yes. <laughs> can't Yamantika sit down? Yes. <laughs> that uh, you have... Flexibility, you know, if you're going to work with these figures, make it something which is comfortable, which is part of life. It's not, you know, you're not frozen as a statue, you know, the uh, form of these uh, figures. But this is, you know, what you're manifesting as. So work with it on a realistic level. So daily practice is uh, very, very helpful. And if we're doing a Dharma light practice, then the mantra it can be, you know, visualizing the deity in front of us and so on. And in this way, try to fill in more and more all the different uh, uh, pieces that we're trying to weave together with this practice. So that, uh, you know, and if you look at the sadhanas, the sadhanas have all the mundra practices there. You know, if you look at the longer forms, they always have a Vajrasattva section. They always have generation of refuge and bodhicitta and the four immeasurables. They always have reaffirming the uh, vows. All these things are, the mandala offering. Everything is there. So it's not that uh, we just do these practices beforehand and then forget about them. If the main purpose of these uh, uh, unshared or uncommon preliminaries is to uh, build up positive force and cleanse away some negative force, that's something that we need to uh, maintain continuity with throughout all our practice. And the sadhanas provide that framework for doing that uh, every day.
And also what's helpful is to remind ourselves what the vows are. There are various practices that one can do in which one recites every day what the vows are. Very, very helpful, otherwise you don't remember. So these are very helpful uh, guidelines. And you know, to, to always keep in mind the various uh, types of sutra practices, what I always recommend to people is as part of your daily practice that you read through or recite some of these basic uh, mind training texts, lojong texts, whether it's the eight-point, I mean the eight-verse uh, mind training, or the seven-point mind training, or the 37 bodhisattva practices. This is the basis. And spend some time each day focusing on one verse. And try to really think about it terms of how it applies to my life. This is so important as a part of a daily practice because uh, it's very easy to think of our daily practice only as a sadhana. And we do that and it sort of, as I say, doesn't really relate to our lives. And Having this type of practice, you know, even if we do it on a daily level and it gives us some sort of continuity and perseverance and so on, uh, it doesn't really make a big transformation in our lives. And this is what Dharma is all about, is to work on ourselves, overcome our shortcomings in realizing our full potentials. That's what it's all about. And doing that in a Mahayana way, we're not just doing it so that we will be free of suffering ourselves, but doing it so that uh, our disturbing emotions and our confusion don't mess up our ability to help others. How can you help others if you get angry with them? How you can help others if you are clinging to them? You're dependent on them to say thank you. Again, what do you, you know, are you gonna wag your tail? They say thank you. So these are very, very helpful. If that is the foundation, then in addition to Tantra, then we start to transform ourselves. You know, you can work with uh, Tantra on the level of uh, self-image. That's another way of working with it. But it's not really, you know, power of positive thinking and self-help type of thing, but uh, if you're careful with it, it can be very, very helpful in terms of uh, gaining some sort of positive image of ourselves. If we're thinking in terms of uh, poor me and I can't really understand something or, you know, I really don't, you know, feel anything for this person or any of these uh, things. You know, the Tantra method of uh, thinking in terms of these deities, even if we work in terms of, you know, imagining ourselves as this, you know, as long as we're not going, you know, really into a weird trip of uh, 
the, uh, you know, I really am Tara and so on. But uh, to give us this confidence, you know, like uh, when we are faced with a difficult situation and we are uh, very confused to imagine, well, no, you know, I'm Manjushri. I have clarity of mind. I am able to understand. Or I am able, you know, I'm, you know, Chenrezi. Avalokiteshvara, I am able to feel something for others. This sort of thing, you know, rather than a negative self-image, a positive self-image. But that can only be on the basis of, you know, it can really only function on the basis of voidness, that both the positive and negative self-images are, you know, devoid of being self-established, you know, it rises dependent on causes and conditions and, you know, concepts and so on. Some understanding of what's going on. Otherwise, you identify, just as you identify solidly with the negative self-image and get into problems with that, you can identify with the positive one and become so arrogant and, you know, really ridiculous. So that understanding of voidness is necessary for this shift of a self-image, but Tantra can help us uh, with that if we do it properly. So that also is uh, a great benefit that we can uh, derive. There are many, many other benefits of uh, uh, the uh, Tantra practice, but uh, maybe that's something that uh, we can speak about later or at another time just mention one aspect of that, uh, which is when you are uh, focusing on a Buddha figure or yourself as a Buddha figure, more advanced uh, practices, uh, for gaining concentration, this is uh, far uh, more, what should I say, easy stable object of focus than focusing on our regular body. Our regular body is uh, changing all the time. So if you're focusing on the body and you have the ache in your, in your leg and you have uh, this itch and you have all these sort of things, so that is very difficult for developing shamatha. A stilled and settled state of mind because the object is changing. Whereas if you're focusing on this Buddha figure, it's a so-called uh, permanent impermanent phenomenon. There's a technical term for that, but it doesn't change. It's always the same. So you can always come back to the same object of focus not like your body, that you know, now it's like this, and now it itches, and now you know, you're hungry, and, and now you're tired, and all of that. So you have a stable focus to always come back to, every session, same. This is one benefit of it. And also, it doesn't have negative associations with it. With focusing on our body, we can have all sorts of negative associations with, oh, I'm too fat, and now I'm old, and you know, I'm too skinny, or whatever it might be. I'm not pretty enough, 
I'm God's gift to the world, I'm so gorgeous, you know, whatever it might be. This type of uh, thing, there are these disturbing associations with our ordinary body. We don't have that with the Buddha figure, sort of, you know, clean in that sense. So that also makes it uh, a more conducive, an object that is more conducive for focus with single-minded concentration. So there are many, many benefits that uh, are elaborated in the text of uh, how uh, using these Buddha figures for gaining concentration uh, is so beneficial. We find this in sutra as well. You know, there is a huge long list of uh, objects for uh, uh, developing shamatha, you know, single-minded, not single-minded, but a stilled and settled state of mind. And different types of objects uh, also delineated uh, according to what is our dominant disturbing emotion. And focusing on the breath is uh, indicated by Kamala Shila, great Indian master, for those who have a great deal of mental wandering. So then you focus on the breath because that's, you know, that's there all the time and it's steady. So fine. But... There are, what you say, many other objects that uh, we can uh, use for developing this, uh, you know, focus and uh, you doing this in the uh, Tantra sense with these Buddha figures has these many, many benefits. So as I was saying, you know, with Sutra method, we, uh, what is the most, uh, you know, uh, commonly recommended is focusing on a Buddha in front of us. So what's the point of focusing on a Buddha? It's uh, not just, you know, how pretty and stuff like that, but this is the object of refuge. So we keep in mind all the qualities of the Buddha. And this is the direction I want to go on, go in. And bodhicitta, this is representing the enlightenment that I'm wanting to achieve. So the same thing if we, in Tantra, are visualizing ourselves as a, as a Buddha figure. This is also the object of bodhicitta, that this is representing the enlightened state that I want to achieve. So with these uh, Buddha figures, we use it for helping us to develop concentration. There are many, many benefits that uh, go together with that. So let's uh, think a little bit, take a few moments to uh, reflect on uh, what we have uh, spoken about so far. We have spoken about uh, what are the things that we can focus on in our practice of uh, Tantra if we are a Dharma-like practitioner of Tantra, that uh, we are not practicing in terms of uh, understanding of rebirth, because if uh, we think in terms of the highest class of Tantra, Nutra Yoga Tantra, then that's all that it's involved with, is rebirth. That uh, one thinks in terms of the uh, death Bardo and rebirth process, and one 
during that process, one comes down to the clear light mind, which is uh, the subtlest level of mind that manifests uh, naturally at the time of death. But we don't have any understanding with that clear light mind, so you know all the instincts from our you know karma and disturbing emotions you know take over, and then you know, wham, you're in the next type of uh, rebirth. Bardo, and then uh, rebirth. What you want to do is transform that in meditation so that you go down to that subtlest level of mind and instead of uh, emerging in terms of uh, a subtle appearance of a Bardo being and a grosser appearance of an ordinary rebirth that we manifest in terms of subtle appearance of Sambhogakaya and a uh, grosser appearance of Nirmanakaya. So there's all the incredibly uh, sophisticated methods for being able in meditation to gain access to the subtlest level of mind as happens in naturally in death, the process of dying. So one imagines the same stages of going down to that subtlest level and then uh, when with that subtlest level, focusing on voidness or emptiness, which is the opponent for getting rid of these obscurations so that uh, we don't activate these uh, karmic tendencies and all the habits of our disturbing emotions and ignorance and stuff like that. You want to get rid of that, don't activate that. And instead, activate these you know, positive Buddha nature factors so that, wham, you know, at least in our imagination, we imagine that we come up from this and manifest in this Buddha figure form. And eventually, when we can really do it, you know, manifest as a, in the form bodies of a Buddha. So if we're going to practice a Nutri Yoga Tantra, the highest class of Tantra, where you have, you know, uh, Vajravarahi, you know, uh, Dojipamo, Vajrayogini, Chakrasamvara, all the various uh, uh, Nutra Yoga Tantra deities. Come on, if you don't think in terms of uh, rebirth, what are you actually doing with this? You know, it doesn't make any sense to try to purify death, bardo, and rebirth if you don't believe in rebirth. So it's absolutely essential at that stage. But if we're not there yet, as we discussed uh, in our session, we can gain great benefit from recitation of mantra in terms of protecting the mind on a provisional level so that uh, we can stop just, you know, worrisome thoughts going through our head with a type of mental yoga, not yoga, mental judo. And on the deepest level, as it says in the Heart Sutra, Prajnaparamita, the understanding of emptiness, far-reaching attitude, so it's held with bodhicitta. This is the deepest mantra, the most powerful mantra, the mantra that surpasses all, as it says in the Heart Sutra. So do that. We can visualize the figure in front of us, gain inspiration, use that as a way to integrate the various uh, things that it uh, represents and try to have a daily practice 
in which we develop some sort of stability, some sort of sense of responsibility and commitment to uh, the path of what we're doing. So let's reflect on that for a moment of uh, how, if we are involved in Tantra practice or if we are contemplating getting involved with Tantra practice, what are we going to actually be doing with it? Is it going to be just a, uh, uh, a form of uh, spiritual um, hobby? Some sort of escape into, you know, Buddhist Disneyland to, uh, you know, this type of uh, stuff? Or what am I actually doing? You know, I have a whole lecture. It's on my website. You know, what's the difference between imagining that I'm a Buddha figure and imagine, you know, and a crazy person thinking that they're Mickey Mouse? You know, what's the difference? Now I'm Mickey Mouse and I'm leading everybody to Disneyland. You know, wonderful. Completely crazy. So, you know, it's the same thing. Now I'm the, you know, the good red fairy and I'm leading everybody to fairyland, you know, to Dakini land. Is that how we're practicing? You know, what's going on? What level are we taking this at? You know, is it a child's game or, you know, a video game? Or is it, you know, something that uh, makes sense to us? So reflect on that for a few minutes.
Okay. So this is uh, I think a helpful thing to do for our website. We have uh, been uh, interviewing various uh, lamas and uh, Buddhist teachers, asking uh, different questions that uh, then we are putting in various places on the website and YouTube. And uh, one of the questions that uh, we uh, have uh, been asking a few teachers was uh, if you can uh, recommend one meditation for Westerners, what would you recommend? So we asked that to uh, Ringo Tuku, and uh, he said that uh, meditation to do each day to reflect on what am I doing with my life? That this would be, you know, very, very helpful. Just what am I doing? Where am I going? The uh, other thing that uh, we have asked is uh, what was the most uh, beneficial piece of advice that you received from your teachers? So we asked that to uh, Tenzin Pamo, uh, probably the most realized Westerner practitioner. She spent 12 years in solitary retreat in a cave in Lahul. And uh, she said that uh, the advice that she received from her teacher was uh, from one of the yogis at uh, her monastery was that uh, three times each hour to uh, stop and become mindful of what's going on in your mind. What is the state of your mind? You know, in terms of emotions, in terms of everything that's uh, going on. So Thich Nhat Hanh has this mindfulness bell. But uh, take that even further. Always examine what what's going on. Very, very helpful. So perhaps you have uh, some further questions about uh, what we've been uh, discussing. I think that uh, it's important not to cover too much at one time, but to uh, really chew on what we have uh, been uh, discussing and clear up some questions that you might have that are related to it. Um, you said something about if you do uh, Yudan practice not correctly, you might end up being reborn as a ghost with that kind of form. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, this is from the text. Yeah, so what would cause that? Is that, I mean, one is recommended to <coughs> not only generate oneself as the Yudan, but also all others. I guess that was one way of kind of reducing pride or, or attachment to clinging to that form. But is it, I thought maybe that could happen if you don't do the dissolution state stage. 
is that, can you tell me something about what prevents that, that result, as you warned against? What uh, prevents the visualization of ourselves as a yidam from uh, uh, acting as a cause for rebirth, as a ghost in that form, is bodhicitta and dedication, dedication of the positive force of the practice to attaining enlightenment. If you don't dedicate, you know, the, I mean, this is says over and over again, you know, even in the seven-point uh, mind training, you know, the beginning and the end, you know, they set the intention that I'm doing this as a cause to build up, you know, uh, toward enlightenment, and at the end, the dedication of the positive force. At least that level, and it has some sort of meaning to us, will prevent that positive force from automatically just going into building up you know, positive karma to improve a samsaric situation till you some sort of form in this ghost. So that's the, you know, the major thing that is involved here is bodhicitta. Well, if you're doing the chenresi, then you, the practice itself is supposed to kind of develop bodhicitta, right? At least compassion. The practice itself and that's an interesting point, is the practice itself intended to go from ground zero to developing bodhicitta, or is it uh, a practice to enhance and make stronger the compassion and bodhicitta that you have worked on with the sutra methods? And if you look at uh, the Again, I'm sorry, but I'm a translator and I'm very much involved with language. But if you look at the, the verb form of semge, you know, to what's usually to, uh, said as, you know, generate, is usually how it's translated, generate bodhicitta. But it doesn't mean generate from, you know, nothing to that. You know, that would be a different verb tense but actually it means to strengthen, to reinforce, to enhance, to generate again, to cause it to grow further. So it's the same thing with the preliminary practices. You don't uh, do, you know, if you want to do it uh, wisely, you don't start doing, you know, prostration and refuge and these sort of things when you have no you know, basis of actually, you know, when refuge means something to you. It's to strengthen it. It's not to just generate it for the first time. You should already be familiar with the sadhana very well before you do a retreat on the sadhana. That's not the time to gain your familiarity. That's the time you, know, you do that beforehand. It's the time to strengthen it. So Chenrezi practice is to strengthen our compassion not to generate it in the very first place. Because otherwise, you know, how do you generate it? Now I'm compassionate. Thank you very much. You know, does that have very much meaning? Emotionally? That's pretty hard. But if one thinks in terms of, you know, just as I have strong drive to overcome my own unhappiness and suffering, so does everybody else. 
So then we have renunciation, that's the determination to be free of our suffering. And then, with that very strong determination, there's the meaning of the Tibetan word, Jung, to become definite, I'm going to get out. Then you just switch the focus of, you know, not myself to everybody else. Then that's compassion. And that brings up the other thing which is so essential for uh, Tantra. It's not only bodhicitta and the correct view of voidness, but it's also renunciation. Renunciation, this determination to be free, means that I am determined to give up my ordinary appearance, my ordinary self-image, the ordinary things of, uh, you know, what I'm involved with, and shift my focus to, you know, something more pure, you know, to this Buddha image and all of that, that this is what my focus is going to be. My focus is not going to be on gaining more money and power and more entertainment and, you know, all of that, but this is my focus. So without that, uh, you know, renunciation, what are we doing? It's just a vacation into, as I say, a Buddhist Disneyland, but not really seeing that, you know, this is something which is possible. It's not a Disneyland. So understanding, and we'll get into this uh, tomorrow, what actually does it mean to arise in the form of this Buddha figure, this Yidam. Why? Is this crazy? Is it, what is this? Is this what I want to be, you know, somebody with uh, 24 arms and four faces? You know, why? So, that renunciation is also, you know, these three principal pathways of mind, renunciation, bodhicitta, and correct understanding of voidness, these are essential on top of refuge. And then, of course, you need concentration and the paramitas, you know, all of this stuff. You need that discipline. Okay? So these practices are to strengthen these things that we've developed uh, further, to take them further, not to generate them for the first time. Yeah. Thank you very much for this teaching. Um, I am <coughs> I was thinking about what you said about uh, the Dharma light version of uh, practicing Vajrayana. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, to my mind, it's not so much uh, the lack of um, trust in, uh, in that rebirth is true, <laughs> because uh, personally I feel that that's uh, the more logical uh, <laughs> way than all the alternatives. <laughs> mm -hmm. So it's not, uh, it's not that I I lack that kind of trust, but or lack that kind of outlook. But I think that uh, what is um, that what would be 
more a hindrance for practicing real Vajrayana uh, would be the, the lack of these basic things that you are saying, the lack of concentration, lack of understanding into, uh, of emptiness, lack of renunciation and so on. Yes, for sure. So for sure. Uh, yeah. So, but uh, but um, that said, I think that uh, these uh, dharma uh, <laughs> dharma light version of Vajrayana practice uh, could be suitable for uh, for uh, would be maybe <coughs> the most suitable way to start Vajrayana practice anyway, whatever your uh, point of view is on rebirth. <laughs> Uh, yes, I would uh, agree that you could start, and most of us do start, uh, at a Dharma light uh, version. And whether we're practicing Dharma light or the, the uh, real thing, we do need renunciation, bodhicitta, and the understanding of voidness. But uh, particular, at least some level of it, for it to make sense. However, if uh, we're going into you know, the highest class of Tantra, especially where you have uh, all these practices for transforming death, bardo, and rebirth, which is the, you know, the core of a Nutri Yoga practice. It doesn't make any sense if you think that there's no such thing as rebirth. So there it becomes you know, really quite essential when you understand what's going on with the clear light mind and how you want to break this whole cycle of, uh, you know, described as, you know, uh, again, Sirkin Rinpoche had this wonderful image. You know, you have two rooms and you go down to the basement. And so uh, you go down to the basement, you know, that go down to the clear light level of mind. And what you want to do is not go back up the stairs, you know, for the, uh, the room of samsara, but you want to change the configuration you know, so uh, change the uh, fuse so that the lights don't go on in the samsara room and go up the stairs of, you know, Buddhahood. But in order to do that, you have to go down to this, the foundation, you know, the clear light mind. And then with understanding of what you're doing, change the fuses. And that parallels what's happening with death, bardo, and rebirth. You're going down the stairs and back up the same set of stairs over and over again. So there, some understanding of uh, how rebirth works. And for that, you really need to understand not just the description of how the uh, rough mind, the gross mind, uh, withdraws from having the gross elements and so on of the body as its basis, as one level, but you have to understand the 12 links of dependent arising and how, you know, actually you can reverse that by getting rid of ignorance. So then, putting that together, you can transform this whole process and do that in this lifetime. You don't have to die to do that. So, yeah, but uh, we can certainly start on a Dharma light level. And that, I think, for most of us is uh, um, appropriate. Right? 
Thank you. Um, I, I would like to ask about the practice of tone lane. Mm -hmm. Because every time when I see examples and when I read, we are to exchange with another human being. So thinking, you know, the one you like very much, the neutral, and the one with difficulties. And it, it got me thinking as uh, where I live, uh, when I walk, I see lots of our friend, our friends, uh, sentient beings. Why not doing the exchange also for the sake of equanimity with um, cats and rabbits and exchanging genuinely going for it? Um, so, well, certainly we can uh, practice Donglen with uh, mosquitoes and flies, uh, not just uh, you know our pet cat and dog. Uh, with uh, all beings, but uh, you know, this opens up the whole question about uh, Donglen, giving and uh, taking. And this is, uh, and maybe I can just say a few, a few words uh, about that. That uh, this is a, uh, again, a very advanced type of practice to uh, do it on a serious level, you know, to really mean it. That uh, we take on whatever difficulties of uh, others. And uh, it's not just taking it on and holding it inside us and letting it, you know, eat us, you know, eat us up. You know, like uh, we see all the suffering of the world and, you know, I can't take it this uh, type of thing. But uh, to be able to both feel it, but then let it uh, uh, subside. You know, it becomes a very uh, delicate issue when we imagine seriously that uh, you know, maybe you can have this with your child. You know, may I have this cold or the flu and so on, you know, instead of my child. And really be uh, serious about it. You know, I wish I had, you know, fallen down and broken my leg rather than my child. So, you know, you can develop that with uh, your own, you know, especially a small child. But with everybody else, it's uh, quite difficult. But... Uh, Nevertheless, the uh, thing of feeling the suffering and the unhappiness of uh, someone else. And not just empathizing with it, but you know, may they be free of that. May I, you know, and then especially if we are experiencing that ourselves, you know, may the suffering of everybody have something similar to that. May I, my suffering suffice for everybody else. Now, how to do that, on the one hand, without going into the whole martyr trip, you know, I'm going to suffer for everybody, which can be um, done in a very ego type of way. Uh, so we want to have somehow avoid that. But also, what's more tricky is that uh, if we actually experience this unhappiness and suffering of uh, others, how do you then switch to giving them happiness? 
Am I happy that you were suffering? No. But how do you make that transition? This is what's very, very delicate in the practice of uh, Donglen. And how seriously do we want to actually experience you? Know, may I take on all the stupidity of everybody? So now I feel stupid. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know, how do you do that? It says take on the three poisons and the seven point uh, mind trainings. So I'm taking on the stupidity, the ignorance of everybody as well. So here, the uh, Mahamudra teachings are very, very helpful. That uh, if we think in terms of uh, these uh, the suffering, the unhappiness, even the uh, ignorance, the confusion, and so on, as waves on the ocean, you know, upsetting waves on the ocean. So we take it in, we feel it, and then we let the ocean quiet down. And then on the basis of the innate Buddha nature qualities that we all have compassion and so on as part of the nature of uh, the mind, that if you can quiet down that uh, disturbance, then you can access these innate qualities, these positive qualities, and it's on the basis of that that then you generate love and compassion and happiness to others. That's how you make this transition in Donglen. So when we do that, uh, it's very important to be able to you know, when you try to practice that, not do it as a martyr trip, and to be able to make that uh, transition. And uh, the main focus of Donglen is really to overcome that uh, selfishness, that self-centered feeling that I don't want to get my hands dirty. With, uh, you know, I don't want to have to uh, uh, help this drunk on the street or uh, all of that, which is very interesting. You know, I'm willing to wipe my baby's nose with my finger, but I'm not willing to wipe the nose of the drunk person on the, you know, <laughs> on the street. What's the difference? You know, this expression, if it's my lover's cup, it's clean. If it's the cleaning lady's cup, it's dirty. You know, we're willing to <laughs> drink out of our lover's cup, but we're not willing to drink out of the stranger's cup. So what's the difference? It's equanimity, but that's another point. Another point. So in this uh, practice of Donglen, then the uh, visualizations that are recommended in it are very, very powerful. So it's not just a matter of, uh, you know, darkness coming into us and light going out. You know, come on, that's a very light version, you know, of the whole thing. So you imagine all sorts of, you know, dirty substances, you know, oil and grease and, you know, like that coming in that, you know, ooh, I don't want to get dirty with that. To sort of smash this uh, strong sense of, you know, me, I don't, you know, ooh, you know, I don't want to get involved. And then you imagine vomit and feces and, you know, pus and blood and all sorts of, you know, the vomit coming in, you know, that these things that you're taking on are in that form. 
in order to get this instinctive resistance of, you know, you know I, don't, I don't want that. And then you imagine whatever it is that you're most afraid of, whether it's spiders or, you know, getting burned alive or, you know, whatever it might be that you're most afraid of. And you imagine that, you know, you take on the sufferings and the difficulties of others in this form. Then you really start to overcome this, you know, self-cherishing, this ego grasping that I don't want to have to deal with the problems of others. So this Donglen practice is incredibly powerful. And when done correctly, it's very advanced. So again, not something to just do as a game, you know, in comes the black light and out goes the white light, you know, and la-di-da, and you don't feel anything. That doesn't uh, do very much to uh, help to develop us, ourselves. So just a little bit of an aside about uh, Dong Len. Wonderful practice, but uh, there's a light version and there's a real thing version. I am doing uh, Soto and Andro practice, which is uh, based in the Kagyu tradition. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, I have uh, based this practice on a on a book or pamphlet. Uh, it's a short book uh, written by the seventeenth um, uh, Karmapa. Mm -hmm. So I think it's a it's a good source for. Uh, and it's called something like uh, Nandra for our, the current time or something like this. I can't mm -hmm. really remember. Uh, and it's it's um, it's uh, written for us Westerners, mm -hmm. uh, and it's abbreviated mm -hmm. in some forms. So uh, it's made for us to be able to do this and also have a job, basically. Mm -hmm. And it also writes that uh, this is not for the, the Tibetans, though. Like for example, some of the of the uh, refuge prayer is shortened, mm -hmm. uh, and he he writes that uh, this is for the Westerners, right? But not for the Tibetans. Um, mm -hmm. What he also does is in the I, I guess you're you're familiar with the Kagyu refuge uh, tree as well, mm -hmm. even even though you have sure. a Gelug sure. uh, background. Uh, so you have different uh, in the tree itself. Mm -hmm. uh, you have different um, uh, figures. They figures. They this. You have a Vajrasattva, of course, in the middle, mm -hmm. and, uh, and uh, um, his assembly around, or and mm -hmm. the lineage right. in in the Mahamudra tradition. Um, so um, and then you have the the Yidams. You have. Uh, Buddha figures. Yeah, yeah I'm uh, familiar. Uh, and Shinresi. Um, um, mm -hmm. well. And um, 
lower level, you have the Dharma Palace. Mm -hmm. And then he writes that uh, you, don't, you don't need to focus on those. Mm -hmm. um, and that's for the yogis. Mm -hmm. So I find that this is an interesting point that even in the regular uh, practice, mm -hmm. uh, speaking of this Dharma light and who is mm -hmm. doing what, but uh, that in this tree itself, that it's uh, something there for uh, maybe more advanced practitioners than ourselves. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't know if you have any views on, on that. Uh well, yes. Uh, first of all, visualizing just the Buddha, Shakyamuni, everything is all there in one. So one doesn't need an elaborate uh, uh, you know, guru tree, the, the tree of refuge, that uh, also, uh, if that is, uh, because that can be overwhelming if you're trying to uh, imagine all these different, if you try to imagine all these uh, different images <laughs> and so on, then uh, uh, you lose your focus. You know, you don't really can't focus on refuge, you're just focusing on, you know, how do I get all these little figures there? But in terms of Dharma protectors, uh, again, I go back to Sirkin uh, Rinpoche's uh, explanation. Uh, Dharma protector is like having a large dog that uh, in the mandala, which is a palace, uh, you are the central figure actually you're all the figures in the uh, mandala but let's say you're just the, you know the, you're the central figure now as that figure you know is the boss you could chase away uh, thieves from your gate you're perfectly capable of doing that but why do that when you could have a large dog at the gate and the dog can chase away the thieves but in order to have in the images, you know, this huge Tibetan mastiff dog, you know, they're pretty fierce, uh, you know, pit bull, you know, if we want to use our Western type of uh, image. You have to be really strong. You're the master. You command that dog. So you command that uh, Buddha protector, the Dharma protector, I'm sorry, because if you don't, it's going to harm you. And you have that commitment with the dog that you have to feed it. So likewise, you know, there are all these commitments to make offerings to the Dharma protector. And, you know, there's a whole big ritual of what you do. And if you aren't powerful enough as the Yidam to be able to control the Dharma protector, come on, the best refuge, the best protection is refuge. And you can't do better than refuge as a protection. So leave it at that and leave, you know, practices with dharmapalas for the yogis. So this is very wise advice from His Holiness the Karmapa. Anyone else? Yes, please. Oh, 
just start falling off of that because uh, in my Nanotechs, the I'm doing the refuge to the Dao protector. Mm -hmm. Can I keep doing that without? Uh, well, yes. You know, there's no problem in terms of that of uh, including the Dharma protectors, uh, you know, as part of your refuge. But I think the, the point is, are you going to actually uh, do a protector practice yourself? And how are you going to do a protector practice? You know, at what level do you need to be to do a protector practice? Now, monasteries have, you know, protector of the monastery and the monasteries, you know, come together and uh, they do um, you know, you have a protector room, actually. <laughs> you have, you know, in the monastery, in the temple, and there are special monks that uh, are, uh, uh, that's what they do. You know, they do all the rituals for the protectors, so that's going on, you know, every day, you know, without fail. These are very elaborate uh, rituals that uh, they do. So then the question becomes, do we need that when we have a Dharma center to have a protector for the Dharma center? Are we a monastery? You know, do we follow that model of the monastery? And uh, if we are uh, led by a Tibetan Lama, who is well qualified to be able to do these practices, then wonderful if uh, he leads them. And we are basically observers. We're not really doing it, if you know what I mean, in terms of really being the Yidam and commanding the, uh, the protector. You know, that's okay. That's okay. So what does uh, refuge mean? You know, you are the guru, you, know, you are the yidam, you are the dakini, you are the dharma protector, you know, in terms of the uh, guru. So we can understand that, uh, you know, the guru incorporates all of that, the buddhas incorporate all of that. So that level is fine. But, the le but what I was referring to is the level of, you know, are we ready to actually practice a protector practice ourselves personally and that you have to be very careful with that's not something to mess around with this was the you know the main advice that uh, my teachers gave you know, be careful yeah. it's like a big dog yeah. but if i got you right it is okay because i'm doing Andro on but uh, only the can you speak with the microphone, please? Yes, only um, I'm doing Nandro now, mm -hmm. but I'm, I'm doing the, um, well, I'm trying to com reflect on the four thoughts that changed the mind and the, mm -hmm. and the um, uh, refuge. Mm -hmm. But the way I see it now, I have to just take it very slowly and then I think it will reveal uh, gradually. Mm -hmm. So that's why. I so have I understood you correctly that I can just keep on taking refuge in the Dharma Palace and, and just... Well, you're taking refuge in the Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha. Yeah. Right? Now, the Sangha can include Dharma protectors. Now, there are um, many, many different kinds of Dharma protectors in many different levels. 
There are those which are manifestations of, uh, that a Buddha can manifest as. There are those which are on some sort of Arya level, that non-conceptual cognition of voidness. There are those which are worldly protectors as well. The worldly protectors are never put on the Dharma tree. You know, they're below it, below the tree. So part of this is, uh, as you say, if you look in the Kangur and Tengur, which Dharma protectors are there, there's only very few. Mahakala, um, that's the main one that we find. Well, then you come to Tibet and you get you know, a whole bunch more. You have Guru Rinpoche attained and so on. They're not mentioned in the uh, Kangur and Tengur from India. Then it goes to Mongolia and you get even more. So, you know, these are, if it's a manifestation of a Buddha, you know, then, you know, or on the, you know, then it's an, um, you know, part of Buddha refuge. If it's a manifestation of Arya Sangha, then it's a, you know, that level. Or if it's just somebody to help us, we take provisional refuge, you know, but not our deepest, you know, not ultimate uh, refuge. So we have to understand what is the, function of uh, protectors. And there are many, many different you know, places in which they come in in uh, a sadhana. You know, there are, in a sadhana, there are the uh, uh, 15 directional protectors, which are basically Hindu gods that are then tamed and uh, transformed into the, you know, the Yidams and basically ordered not to bother us, you know, to protect. And you make some offering to them and they go away. So uh, we're talking about this whole idea of local deities, in a sense, either the Hindu gods or the... Uh, you know, demons and, you know, mountain spirits and so on in uh, Tibet or whatever demons we have here in the West. You know, see that they have Buddha nature as well. So you transform them on the basis of Buddha nature into these Buddha figures and, you know, don't make interferences, you know, with superstition, with, uh, you know, confusing what I'm doing with some sort of, you know, other, you know, religious or philosophical view. There are many ways to understand how, you know, they could cause interference. So transform them in that sense. Then you have uh, protectors which are, you know, you set up a, uh, uh, a protection wheel in the practice. So, you know, some you know, form of a uh, forceful deity, protector, to actually guard the directions around. And so you can take that on an external level, you can take that on an internal level that this represents the heart chakra and they're guarding, you know, the winds from not escaping from dissolving of the heart. You know, there's many different levels at which you can uh, take this. So some sort of, you know, what should we say, a restraint to help. And then there are 
various protectors like Mahakala or um, Yamaraja or Pildamamo or these sort of things that you invite into the mandala and ask for their protection, for their help. So just as we get support from the Arya Sangha, you can also get support from the protectors, but not the worldly ones, the ones that would be part of the Arya Sangha. So when we take, you know, in, in each of these different figures, you know, whether we're talking about Dakinis or we're talking about Dharma protectors, can help us on the path. You know, they have a certain function. You know, Dakinis who, you know, this uh, generation of a blissful, state of mind which helps us to well it's not just our ordinary bliss but to get down to a very subtle level of mind that will be most conducive for understanding voidness non-conceptually so it would help us with that dharma protectors to help us to avoid interference and interference and obstacles can be on so many different levels you know and even just you know on this deepest level you know the that the the winds you know, come back out from uh, being dissolved in the central channel. So this is the way that we can understand it. So it's very important when, you know, we take refuge with these figures that we're not looking at, uh, looking at them as, uh, you know, oh, please save me. You know, you're my savior. And we are passive at best, we you know open ourselves up to their grace. You know, this is not Buddhism. This is other religions. So in that way, you know, just as we want to, you know, don't have interference from the Hindu gods. We don't want to have interference from our own native beliefs either. Okay. Good. One last question. Uh, yeah. One follow-up. Um, <coughs> When Jetsin Kondrinpoche was here, uh, yeah. Minderling Jetsin Kondrinpoche is our advisor. Mm -hmm. And the last time she was here, she recommended us to consider starting a, a protective practice. Mm -hmm. Then you said, well, when you have a big dog, you're going to feed it. Mm -hmm. And I guess that means you have to do a regular daily practice. Right, so, so the that, offerings. So that, you know, when, let's say, Lama Changshu and some people have to come together every day and do that practice. But then, for example, he will go to India for months or two. That means we have to kind of keep up that practice, right? Yes. So I think we have to be very determined to do that before we kind of start such a, a practice for the That's for right. center. That's right. That it is a responsibility. You are making, remember this word tamsik, this connection a bond with the protector. And so if you make that bond, if you buy a dog, you have to feed it. You know, it's as simple as that. So at least some level, even if you know, we're not you know, super tantric practitioners, at least some level of uh, you know, making offerings, water bowl, whatever, something, candle, something. That sort of uh, thing is, uh, you know, needed. And again, as uh, I go back to my uh, 
source, Sirkamrithache, was saying that, uh, you know, it's not necessary, the actual words that you say. Because if you look at the uh, Tibetan Buddhist literature, there are so, so many variants of absolutely everything that you can't say that, you know, it has to be this particular, you know, verse and this particular thing that you say. So even in your own language, you know, I offer this to your Dharma protectors, you know, please enjoy. I make up for any um, uh, discrepancy, you know, or weakness, a fault that I've had in my, you know, relation with you. You know, this is the actual, you know, protect, the, the protective practice is called gangso. So it's to uh, fulfill your commitment and uh, heal any um, uh, mistakes that you've made. That's what the practi uh, protective practice is called in Tibetan. And so whatever words you have, it's a state of mind. You know, please, I offer this to you, you know, if I've you know, done anything wrong, I, you know, I regret that, and please continue to protect, you know, that's enough. If you're not well-versed in, you know, a whole big ritual, and it would seem a little bit pretentious to do it yourself. So, you know, it's like, for instance, uh, when you have a commitment to uh, offer tzok twice a month on the 10th and 25th for Vajrayogini, Vajrapamo. Then uh, somebody asks uh, Sarkar Rinpoche, uh, what happens if we don't have a Tibetan calendar and we don't know when the 10th and 25th of the lunar month is? To which he replied, doesn't the Western month have a 10th and 25th? In other words, don't be superstitious about it. The point is a commitment, something regular. Thank you. Thank you.